Welcome to Nerd Heaven. I'm Adam David Collings, the author of Jewel of the Stars, and I am a nerd. This is episode 32 of the podcast. Today, we continue our look at the DC Extended Universe with Wonder Woman. The description on IMDb reads, When a pilot crashes and tells of conflict in the outside world, Diana, an Amazonian warrior in training, leaves home to fight a war, discovering her full powers and true destiny. The screenplay was written by Alan Heinberg, from a story written by Zack Snyder, Alan Heinberg and Jason Fuchs. The film was directed by Patty Jenkins, and it first released on the 25th of May 2017. So, let's talk about Wonder Woman. We are introduced to Wonder Woman in present-day Paris, working at the Louvre, and we immediately get our first bit of connective tissue with the DC Universe as the Wayne Enterprises van pulls up. That photo that Bruce found and emailed to her in Batman vs Superman? He's found the original. He thought she might like it. Isn't that sweet? He still wants to hear the story. And that takes us to Diana's childhood. Themyscira looks awesome. All those waterfalls and stone buildings, incredible visuals. They cast young Diana really well. Not only is she a cool little actress, but I recently saw a photo of her beside a childhood shot of Gal Gadot. They look very similar. It's so cute seeing young Diana mimicking the actions of the adults as they battle. You'll notice that this entire sequence in Themyscira gives us no sense of time. All the way until Steve arrives. That makes sense. This is a world to itself, completely cut off and self-sufficient. To them, the outside world doesn't really exist. But I find myself wondering, how old exactly is Diana when she meets Steve? When are these childhood scenes set? We know Amazons don't age like humans. We know Diana was created by Zeus in the time of the ancient Greeks. So how long was her childhood? Did she take centuries to grow up? Or did she mature at a normal rate and then simply live as an adult for thousands of years? Anyway, we get some backstory. The stories of Greek mythology are already considered ancient at this point, having happened a long time ago. So this movie canonizes the existence of the Greek gods as real in the DC universe. The Marvel movies present the Norse gods as real but aliens. This movie doesn't make that claim. It leaves it a little uncertain, but the implication seems to be that Zeus and his mates were actual gods. The implication also is that human beings were created by Zeus. At least, Antiope believes this. After Ares corrupted the hearts of mankind, Zeus created the Amazons to influence man's hearts with love. So did humans, male and female, not already know love, or is the suggestion here that the Amazons were the first females? Perhaps that human females are descended from them. Again, it's not completely clear. We know the gods can die, given that Ares killed all but Zeus, so they are in some form mortal beings. 
With his dying breath, Zeus created a weapon that could kill a god, just in case Ares returned. The movie cleverly doesn't explain exactly what that weapon is yet. The look on Antiope's face when Diana asks to see the god killer means so much more on repeat viewing. Note she never actually calls the sword the god killer, Diana is the one who says it. She assumes, though clearly pushed in that direction. Hippolyta is hesitant to let Diana train as a warrior, but when she eventually agrees, she insists that she be trained harder than any Amazon before her. But she must never know the truth about herself. This of course is our first clue that Diana herself is the god killer. But because she's never been told the truth, when her powers begin to manifest, she has no idea what's going on. And then we hear the buzz of a propeller plane as it passes through the force field protecting Themyscira. Chris Pine was a great pick to play Steve. I was surprised how easily I was able to separate him from Captain Kirk, possibly because to me Captain Kirk will always be William Shatner. I love the visual contrast as the camera passes through the force field, the bright world of Themyscira gives way to the dark fog surrounding the German ship. Does Themyscira have the same day-night cycle as the rest of the planet? Because it looks like nighttime out here. Of course, fog does make everything a lot darker. And the shot as the German officer puts his head in and out of the force field is really cool. Diana's sense of wonder as she sees a man for the first time is nicely played. Here's a question. Why didn't the Amazons continue to advance their weapons technology? We'll learn later that they are at least somewhat aware of what is going on in the outside world. They know many languages of the outside world, including English. They're a race of warriors, so certainly not against fighting. Don't get me wrong, they clean the floor with the German soldiers, guns or not, but they pay a high price in casualties. Do they consider bows and swords more honourable in some way than bullets? Because that's a perspective I don't quite understand. Of course, there's no denying that swords are cool. And so Antiope dies, sacrificing her life, taking the bullet to save Diana. As she dies, she knows the time has come. War has consumed the world. Ares has returned. The Amazon who argues against killing Steve on the spot is wise. If we kill him, we learn nothing of who they are and why they came, she says. And we're introduced to the Lasso of Truth, a potentially cheesy addition to the Wonder Woman mythos, and yet this movie makes it work. Steve tries desperately to avoid revealing that he's a spy. He has a duty, he can't willingly reveal classified secrets in wartime but ultimately he has no choice. I like the way it's betrayed, as he endures as much as he can before the truth finally bursts out of his mouth. Can I say that I love that they set this movie in World War I. World War II has been used so many times in so many stories, it's practically a cliche. I mean, it was a practical good idea to set this apart from Captain America, which was set in World War II. But from a creative standpoint, I just enjoyed the earlier setting. I guess since the fairly recent centenary of the First World War, I've been thinking a lot more about it than I used to when I was younger. Steve is on a very important mission. 
If he doesn't get word of Dr. Poison's plan back to the British, millions will die. Apparently, the Amazons haven't been paying much attention to the outside world for a while, because they're not aware of the Great War. And you can understand that from their perspective, hearing of this horrific war, truly a war like none the world has ever seen, it's obvious that Ares has returned, and it's messing with humanity. Diana starts off this story as quite naive, but that doesn't mean she's wrong in wanting to go with Steve and help. This is why the Amazons were created. This is why Diana was created. But like the monks of old, the Amazons have shut themselves off from the world, rather than allow themselves to influence it. This movie doesn't quite portray Wonder Woman as being able to fly in the same sense that Superman can fly, but she can certainly jump like no human ever could. So she breaks in, steals the lasso, shield and sword and armour. She's wearing the Wonder Woman costume from this point on, but it'll actually be quite a while before we see it. We see a lot of Diana's character when she says, I'm willing to fight for those who cannot. In the end, Hippolyta knows what Diana must do. She lets her go with her blessing. As a parent, I understand her reluctance. Who wants to willingly let their children go out into the wide world where they might get hurt? I haven't faced this challenge yet, but for Hippolyta, it's greater because there is so much danger out there. Steve kind of plays along a bit. He doesn't believe for a minute that Ares, the Greek god of war, literally exists, but he's also seen the power of these people, so he knows there's something to them. Again, we see Diana's naivety. As soon as Ares is dead, the war will end, and men will be good again. I mean, she's not exactly wrong, but it's nowhere near as simple as she thinks. She's going to have to face up to the hard reality that things are more complex than she sees if she's going to have a hope of fulfilling her destiny. Steve has a bit of a cynical view of marriage, and if you look at the statistics, it's not hard to understand why. But despite what he says, plenty of married couples still do love each other up until death. I fully intend to do so. So Dr. Poison has developed a serum that gives Ludendorff greater than human strength. Okay, I can suspend disbelief enough for that, but the way his face glows, I don't know, it looks like something supernatural or alien, not like a chemical concoction that could believably have been developed by a human in the early 20th century. It makes sense that Steve, though American, is working for British intelligence. The Americans didn't enter World War I until very late in the game. Even now, as it's nearing its end, they haven't been involved that long. It's interesting that not a single frame of this movie takes place in America. I kind of liked that. Not that I have anything against movies taking place in America. A lot of my favourite movies do. But it just made sense for this story that it took place elsewhere in the world. And frankly, there's a whole planet out there. Not every superhero story has to take place in America. Diana's arrival in London is truly fantastic. This is an incredibly exotic world to her, and she drinks it all up. I love the idea of superhero period pieces. I always have. There haven't been many. I've got to admit, this is one of my favourites. It's very sweet when Diana gets excited at the cry of a baby. She has never seen a baby before. She's been surrounded by adults all her life. Of course she'd want to see it. 
I heard a lot of praise for this movie from female viewers because it allowed Wonder Woman to be powerful, strong, and a mighty warrior without being masculine. She was still allowed to be feminine with all the varied things that that means. And they really appreciated that. And I think I can understand that. And we're introduced to Etta. Etta is totally awesome. She brings a lot of the humour to this film, but it all flows naturally out of her character. This movie has a lot more humour than Man of Steel or Batman vs Superman, but unlike Suicide Squad, the humour was all character based and natural. Much of it came from Diana's being a fish out of water, and the rest came from Etta's great personality. So they make a little joke about slavery. The way Etta describes her job as Steve's secretary does sound like the definition of slavery to Diana, but I think she left out some important details. Now I'm not going to suggest that the world of 1918 was in any way an equitable society, far from it, but there is a big difference between somebody who voluntarily enters into employment offering services for which they are paid money and a slave. I think to seriously confuse the two runs the danger of understating the evils of true slavery. But I may be reading too much into this, it's a joke. It does make sense for Diana to put on setting appropriate clothes to help her blend in. I do love the scene of her walking through the building in her street clothes holding a sword and shield. And the scene in the alley where they are confronted by the German spies and Diana saves Steve is awesome. It's very reminiscent of the scene in Superman the movie where Clark and Lois are mugged. The way Diana catches the bullet, I'm pretty sure that was deliberate. It's a great scene. Steve realises in that moment just what an asset Diana is in a fight. He doesn't need to protect her, she ends up protecting him. Her naivety continues as she asks the German spy where she can find Ares. She's taking everything at face value, assuming people know what she's talking about. And now we meet Sir Patrick Morgan. He's telling everyone they need an armistice, which is quite ironic if you know who he really is. He sees Diana and is taken aback. He says it's because there is a woman in the room, but it may be that he recognises her. And it's Steve who comes up with her secret identity name, Diana Prince. This is done in a realistic way. She can't just walk around calling herself Princess of Themyscira. Due to Diana's linguistic expertise, they learn of Dr. Poison's plan. The creation of a dangerous gas against which masks will be useless. Morgan continues to argue for the armistice, but by doing so he prevents Steve's mission to stop Dr. Poison. Diana's passionate argument to the generals is very satisfying. And yet after Steve tells Diana he's taking her to the front against orders and recruits some backup, Morgan shows up and helps them. Given what I know about Morgan, I'm not quite sure why he's helping Steve and Diana, but as I watch I'm going to pay close attention to see if I can get my head around it. Anyway, he gives them the money to fund their illegal mission. I love the moment when Diana tries ice cream for the first time, another one of those nice little moments that show her innocence. 
I don't think Steve believes that the Greek god of war is behind all of this. Not really, but he's seen enough to know that Diana and her people are powerful. More so than any normal human. He knows something is going on, and he knows she can help him, so he's bringing her along and acting as if what she says is true. The more I think about it, the more I realise that it had to be World War I in this story. This is a war like none the world has ever seen. This is just what it would look like if Ares was trying to destroy the world. That wouldn't have worked for World War II. Don't get me wrong, World War II was horrific, but it wasn't as unprecedented as World War I. So, once they meet Chief, a nickname that would probably be considered politically incorrect in today's world, we've assembled the team that we first saw in that photo in Batman vs Superman. We see a little glimpse of the reality of war with Charlie. He's clearly suffering from post-traumatic stress. Diana has an eye-opening experience as they near the front lines and she gets a sense of what war really looks like. It's a powerful moment as they walk through the trench. Diana learns about the town of Veld. The inhabitants have been enslaved. Steve is not unsympathetic, but helping these people is impossible. Diana doesn't understand. And yet, she has the power to do what nobody else can. And so, she takes off her coat, and finally, we see her in the Wonder Woman costume. Can you believe this is the first time we see Wonder Woman? I didn't realise until this moment that we hadn't actually seen it. The character kept us just so engaged. But it's a wonderful moment, so triumphant and heroic. And yet, there's not even the slightest hint of cheese. It plays wonderfully. I get a whole lot of goosebumps watching this scene. Words can't do it justice. I can only say, it's awesome. And we see her do a few of her super jumps. So they arrive in Veld. This is a fantastic action sequence. We finally get a reprise of the amazing Wonder Woman theme from Batman vs Superman. That music was incredible and I'm so glad they brought it back in this movie. It fits even better here than it did in the previous movie. Interesting fact, did you know it's not actually an electric guitar playing those notes? It's a cello put through the same kind of distortion that's usually applied to guitars. Very cool. What a great moment of celebration as Diana realises she has saved the people of the town. They're all feeling the elation. And we see the famous photo being taken wonderful. We get a nice little reminder that few of these people wanted to be soldiers. They all had different aspirations and dreams. Morgan is insistent that Steve not go near the meeting to jeopardise the armistice, but if Steve doesn't and the poison weapon is deployed, there will be no armistice. Which of course is what Morgan wants. He wants the war to continue. So why did he give Steve that money to help him go? Diana thinks, quite logically, that Ludendorff is Ares. So Steve and Diana finally have a quiet enough moment to really draw close to one another, and they spend the night together. Love is a tricky thing to do in a movie. 
in a TV show, you have time to let people slowly and naturally fall in love over a course of multiple episodes, just like in real life. But a movie has a very limited time. You almost have to make it happen faster than it logically should. A good movie somehow makes it work, despite that. I'm not sure how or why, but for me in this movie, it works. You know what I like about their relationship? It's sweet, it's genuine, and there's not a hint of angst. Diana wants to storm into the castle, guns blazing, and take out Ludendorff. Steve is wise to advise a more subtle approach. Some stories with female heroes, Star Trek Voyager comes to mind, try to make those heroes perfect. They can never be wrong. Wonder Woman doesn't take that approach. It allows Diana to be flawed, to be naive and to make mistakes, by allowing her to be human in that sense. I think this movie portrays Wonder Woman as a more satisfying female hero. And I think that's what a lot of the female viewers who praised this movie appreciated. Certainly I appreciated that approach to Superman in Man of Steel. So anyway, Diana finds her own way to sneak into the palace, and to her credit, she is blending in. Steve's primary objective is to stop the gas weapon from being used. Diana's primary objective is to kill Ares, then everything will be good again. Their objectives are at odds. Steve can't let her kill Ludendorff until they find the gas. Maybe Ludendorff is not Ares, he says, or maybe Ares doesn't even exist. And then they test the gas weapon on Veld. And we have that heartbreaking moment as Diana goes and sees that all the people of that town who she had saved are dead. It's a tragic moment. And Diana blames Steve because he stopped her from killing Ares. In her mind, Steve has been corrupted as well. Which is kind of some growth for her, because in any war, there aren't really pure good guys and bad guys. It's never entirely that simple. This movie had a very successful tone. It had those comedic moments, which actually were funny, to satisfy those who prefer the light-hearted stuff. But it still had a lot of depth and gritty emotion that I crave in a superhero movie. It was the perfect middle ground that seemed to work for everybody. We have another great action scene as Wonder Woman battles Ludendorff. So she kills him. It's over. Except nothing happens. No great world-shattering change. The war is still raging, and Diana is forced to come face to face with the truth. She was seeing things in simplistic terms. The truth is a lot more complex than she has been able to see. It's a terrible moment of self-doubt for her. Maybe people aren't always good, Ares or no Ares, Steve says. Maybe it's who they are. Diana can't accept this. After all, she's seen people killing people they can't even see. Civilians, children, humans can't be that bad on their own, can they? Her mother was right. Mankind doesn't deserve her. And Steve says, it's not about deserve. Maybe we don't. Maybe it's not about what we deserve. Maybe it's about what we believe. 
Don't you think I'd like to believe that it was all just due to one guy? This is all wonderful thematic stuff. So while Diana questions everything she's ever believed, Steve has to go. Someone still has to stop that gas. And that is when Morgan shows up. And we learn the unexpected truth. Morgan is Ares. I thought this was a brilliant move. First of all, I'm glad they didn't make a German Ares. That's too easy, too black and white. The charming, posh old British man? Who would have ever expected him to be Ares? So now we know that Morgan is Ares. We still ask, why did he help Steve come here to stop the gas? So now that we know Morgan is Ares, we still ask, why did he help Steve come here to stop the gas? He wants the gas weapon to be used. He wants the war to continue. All I wanted was for the gods to see how evil my father's creations were, he says. I am not the god of war. I am the god of truth. There is so much here that resonates with me spiritually. So much biblical parallel. As the sword burns, Diana finally learns that it isn't the god killer. She is the god killer. She is the weapon Zeus left behind to protect the world from Ares. We find that humans never needed Ares to make them fight. War and evil are in the hearts of man. It's our sinful nature. It always has been. But he gives a little push here, and a little push there. Gives them the weapons and lets them use them. All he did was engineer an armistice he knew they could never keep. I think in the end, he recognised Diana when he first saw her in London. He wanted her to be here and let her naivety make the war worse, not better. I think that's probably why he gave that money to Steve. When Steve sees them fighting in the distance, he believes. Finally, he has no doubts. Ares is real, and he's here. Steve has a plan, a way to get that gas out of here. He's got to fly the plane somewhere else. It'll likely be a suicide mission. But that's what soldiers do. They make the ultimate sacrifice. I like the intercutting between Diana's battle with Ares and Steve's attempt to hijack the plane. It's a heartbreaking moment as Steve fires the gun that destroys the plane, the poison, and himself. Was that necessary? I don't know. But it at least makes as much sense as Steve Rogers crashing the plane in Captain America. Probably more. Ares' aim here is to prove to Diana how pathetic humans are, how evil and undeserving they are of her sympathy. Dr. Poison ends up being the symbol of mankind. And he's right, the humans don't deserve mercy. They don't deserve her sympathy. It was an interesting filmmaking technique to obscure the sound of Diana and Steve's final conversation, and only reveal it now in this moment. But he makes a good point. He can save today, but she can save the world. They're everything you say, but so much more, Diana says. It's not about deserve. It's about what you believe, and I believe in love. This all lines up so well with what I believe. We are undeserving. 
but we are the recipients of love. I didn't expect this movie to be so thematically relevant. I really connected with this. To use a Christian word, Diana exercises grace, undeserved favour. I don't mean to constantly bring my personal beliefs into this, but honestly, each of these movies just connect with me so personally in these moments, I can't not talk about it. Well, Ares is now dead, and the war is over. Without the devastation of that gas weapon, the armistice has been signed, just as history records. But the death of Ares is not just a quick and easy fix to the world's problems. The sin in human hearts is still there. Each person must make their own choice every day. No hero can do this for them. That brings us back to the present day, the framing device. This is her mission now, to help where she can, and to help people daily make that decision. As she dives into the air and sails over the Paris skyline, she appears to be flying. Properly flying, not just jumping. There is a lot of speculation that in the next Wonder Woman movie, which would have been released by now if it weren't for COVID-19, she will gain the ability to fly. It'll be interesting to see if that's the case. Anyway, that movie will be set before the present day scenes here, so it's conceivable. This movie doesn't have an after credit scene, but there is an epilogue on the Blu-ray in which Etta sends the team out to recover a cube-shaped artifact found near the Western Front, which of course is a setup for Justice League. I love this movie. Where Man of Steel triumphed as a science fiction movie, Wonder Woman triumphs as a war movie and a fantasy. It's a mashup that I really like. Well, it's been a wild ride. Man of Steel, Batman vs Superman, Wonder Woman, even Suicide Squad. I count them all as great movies. Next up, we'll look at the theatrical version of Justice League. I'll talk about what works for me and what doesn't, and try to settle in my mind exactly what it is that I hope for from the Snyder Cut that we'll be getting next year. <laughs>